Hello and welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, well, for now, if anyone has a better idea for the name of this podcast or uh, wants to have some ideas for a bumper, public domain bumper I can put before episodes, let me know. Uh, I haven't put much thought into that myself, just being a bit lazy because uh, I want to focus my efforts on the content of these Lovecraft stories and other writings as I'll get to them. So um, I'm actually looking, we're, we're about halfway through already the kind of the first unit. Uh, six, seven more stories and we'll be done with the Lovecraft writings up through 1919. So we're, we're moving right along, which is, which is great. Um, anyways, uh, this episode, we'll look at a fairly lengthy story um, over 10 pages in the Klinger volume. So it's, it's kind of long for Lovecraft stories of this epic. <clears throat> of course, we write much longer stories later on. Um, this story, Beyond the Wall of Sleep, was originally published in 1919 in Pinecones, which, uh, like most of Lovecraft's writings from this time, was he was published in an amateur journal, something he was quite um, active in. It was also uh, written in the same year, in the spring of 1919, so it was published not long after it was written. Uh, the closest nearby stories to this one are, are Memory, which we've already looked at. Uh, the statement of Randolph Carter was actually written a little bit right before this, but not published until 1925. So, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I think this is a great uh, story to begin to really dig into Lovecraft's relationship with with eugenics, with racial thinking, but also with, you know, kind of continuing some of the themes he played with in Polaris and the tomb about mind swapping other entities taking over one's one's body. It's something he'll be interested in all the way to the end of his career to stories like The Haunter in the Dark, The Shadow Out of Time. Not The Haunter in the Dark, what am I thinking of? The Thing on the Doorstep. The Thing on the Doorstep and The Shadow of Time still playing with uh, the mind swap uh, narrative, Whisper in Darkness of course, as well. Um, so this story kind of does both really well. And I, I want to focus because this podcast is trying to focus on Lovecraft's politics and his uh, racial concepts and his uh, kind of, you know, and kind of engage that discussion about how we can handle Lovecraft and how should we interpret Lovecraft as we're becoming more aware, more sensitive to his 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 racism and and you know I want to kind of suggest a a good way to go at this racism while not throwing out Lovecraft, which I would never want to do, um, but at the same time not just bracketing or ignoring um, his racial politics. I actually think they're central to his work, and you can't read a story like Beyond the Wall of Sleep and not see just how deeply racial consciousness played a role in in how Lovecraft saw the world. Now, it's pretty clear that Lovecraft wanted to tell a story about dreams and the way we interpret dreams. And we already know from Polaris, he's playing with this idea of dreams being a gateway into another existence or into another consciousness. It's in the tomb as well. Uh, so he's already playing with this idea quite a lot. And that's what interested him. And that's how he starts the story. Quote, I have frequently wondered if the majority of mankind ever paused to reflect upon the occasional titanic significance of dreams and the obscure, obscure world to which they belong. Whilst the greater number of our nocturnal visions are perhaps no more than faint and fantastic reflections of our waking experiences. Freud, to the contrary of his puerile symbolism, there are still certain remainder whose immudane and ethereal character permits no ordinary interpretation and whose vaguely exciting and disquieting effort, effect suggest possible minute glimpses into the sphere of mental existence, no less important than physical life, yet separated from that life by an all but impassable barrier. That, by the way, is one sentence. So that's uh, part of the fun of reading Lovecraft is how he constructed these, these quite long sentences. But obviously the point of this story is to talk about mind transfer and use dreams as a device to do that. Um, this story has a lot of science fiction elements too in that we see technology being used. Um, we see kind of what will be beings. We kind of have almost a cosmic milieu being, being um, presented here. So like many of Lovecraft's stories, it kind of fits into uh, horror science fiction. So I'll come back and talk a little bit about that stuff too. I mean, uh, as, we, as we get the plot of 
into the plot of the story. But this is also so strongly a document about eugenics and race. And it's not even dealing with black people or Asians or the yellow peril or something like that, like we saw in Polaris. You can kind of read a yellow peril argument into that. Um, you don't see that. that. That's not the case. Instead, this is just subdividing. This is Lovecraft subdividing uh, kind of the white people in the United States into literally sub-races uh, based on their heritage, based on their, their background, based on their lifestyle, um, and just their, their not being of, of kind of New England Anglo, pure Anglo-Saxon stock, you know, uh, we don't get the full racial history, the background, the immigration history of our main character here, Joe Slater, or maybe he's the villain. He's not the narrator, but he, he's the central figure in the story. We don't get him. We get a lot of descriptions about him. In fact, although this is a okay, a fairly lengthy story, about 30 minutes audiobook, um, about 10 pages, 11 pages. If you just were to take out Lovecraft's commentary on Joe Slater, his adjectives he uses, the, 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 the asides he gives about Joe Slater's ignorance or uh, drunkenness or, or, you know, his background or his just his, his barbarism, you're going to end up with a much shorter story. It's like when I was rereading this story just now, I was really struck by how much Lovecraft had to go back to this. It's like he couldn't let it go. I mean, there, there's a passage early on that makes the point. But pretty much every time he mentions Joe Slater, he has to go on this rant about his degeneracy, his, his kind of vile racial background. And what's the context for this? Well, in some degree, the context for this is early 20th century eugenics. Um, now, of course, you have scientific racism that's shaping Lovecraft's thoughts. Scientific races of the day, of the day divided the world into racial units and sometimes sub-races, right? Um, and saw civilizations really competing along the borders of these racial units. They saw that was the major division in, in society. And there was some kind of competition or hierarchy between them, right? Um, and so... This could lead to all sorts of arguments such as immigration restriction, laws against interracial marriage. It led to uh, uh, kind of the yellow peril stuff we already talked about. It could lead to all these kind of pretty nasty policies, which of course were in place in various states and, uh, in the United States at the time that Lovecraft was writing, right? Now, alongside that, and really parallel to it, I mean, they're really building off the same kind of discourse is the eugenicist argument, right? And you, there's basically two schools of thought in eugenics at the time, the positive and the negative eugenics. So positive eugenics was what was originally advocated by, by Galton. I think that was his name, Galton, um, which basically says that we should um, encourage desirable traits to be, to be enhanced through breeding. Right. So we should encourage the educated to marry or make it more difficult for the highly educated to marry someone who's less well educated. Right. Or considered kind of unfit, um, you know, basically using positive incentives to encourage people to embrace to 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 marry in ways that promote the genetic health, the eugenic health as you know, of the whole society. Right. So that's. Uh, that's one side of it. Uh, the other side were the negative eugenicists. The negative eugenics said that basically governments should prohibit uh, marriage, you know, with, with people who are, in, you know, mentally inferior in some ways, maybe low IQ. This is the same time you start to get the IQ scale and you know, the categories of moron, idiot, imbecile and these things being kind of defined as IQ scores that you can take on a test. Um, so I think part of this had to do with World War One, in fact, where, you know, recruits for for the army got kind of tested and ranked. And so it kind of got into culture through, through the war effort. 
Um, but laws would be passed to say like the moron shouldn't shouldn't marry. Uh, you've had some cases of sterilization, and of course the ban on interracial marriage, which of course wasn't lifted until the 1960s in Virginia, uh, was part of this. So negative eugenics were just more policies meant to restrict the spread, if you will, of of traits that are deemed uh, inferior or undesirable by by society. Now I don't think Lovecraft had a had a really at least I don't see, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll come across in the letters, a real uh, opinion on this. He probably, to some degree, supported both. Um, but I can't think of any line in a letter that I read where he says, you know, I'm a positive eugenicist or I'm a negative eugenicist, that, or make it very clear his position. He definitely did think there was a threat of the racial others. Now, uh, at the time, that Lovecraft was writing, eugenicists were very, very interested in, in uh, kind of people living in like the backcountry areas, people who lived in poverty. I mean, we would now look at this stuff. Sociologists would now look at communities, maybe in Appalachia, um, you know, who are kind of isolated. They might talk about cultures of poverty. That's kind of one step better than eugenicists. The eugenicists talk more really about a hereditary like inheritance of criminality, of poverty, of laziness, or whatever other other negative traits. Then you get uh, later on in the 20th century that gets kind of thrown away when you know the Nazis were defeated and everyone realized eugenics is really bad. Although the Nazis got their eugenics laws by copying the United States and many U.S. states. Uh, the next step was to say, well, there's cultures of poverty, and so it's not genetic, but it's sort of the culture that gets passed on from mother to to child. And, you know, there's still people who hold to that position that there are such a thing as cultures of poverty. And then you have the more modern uh, or more Marxist view, maybe. Uh, I'm sure it's always been there, this, this perspective, but it's more, um, I don't really know. I, I, I'm not enough into the debate over, you know, if culture of poverty arguments are still out there. Probably are. Uh, certainly they are politically. But anyways, another position, way of dealing with this is to say, well, these are people who are isolated. These are people who have uh, not had access to education, not had access to uh, some of the, uh, some economic opportunity or whatever. And that contributes to some of the social problems you'll see in the area, right? But in Lovecraft's time, the basic interpretation of these backwoods people was that they were race mongrels, genetically either race mongrels at, on one side or just perpetuating these undesirable traits generation to generation through intermarriage and, and just marrying within the community. Whether that's crime, whether it's uh, in some cases even disease was tied in into that. So you have uh, families that were studied like the Jukes. That's a famous study <clears throat> from uh, the early 20th century. I forget the exact date of it. But the Jukes were a family. I think this was a, a fake name for the family. But the Jukes were a family that, uh, you know, was problematic for generations, according to the eugenicists. And so what they did is they studied the ancestry of this family and saw generation after generation of, of lack of education, of poverty, of crime, of disease, and said, see, it's carried on through genetics, right? So the, so the policy recommendation for this kind of thing then becomes we should, you know, sterilize these people. We should pass laws, making it hard for them to, to, to have more children because that's just going to create another burden uh, in the future generations. All right. So you have that group. And then, although there's not, it's not clear that Joe Slater here is, a, is what they would have called at the time race mongrels, but he could very well be. Um, there's no reason to not think that. You had uh, eugenicists also study groups, sometimes in the same area, like backcountry Virginia, Appalachia, uh, groups that were at the, called triracial isolates. Um, that was the term eugenicists came for, for them. Triracial meaning white, black, and Indian. So the idea here now, you know, unless you did a DNA test or what is it, 23andMe with them, you wouldn't really maybe know their racial heritage. But what they they claimed and what was others perceived them as was some, you know, maybe slaves ran away from plantation back in the 18th century or 17th century. 
ended up living with the Indians, incorporating the Indian tribes, and then later on white people migrated there and incorporated themselves into it. And the result was uh, like tri-racial groups, but there were isol isolates, meaning isolated, usually in the highlands or in some backcountry area of the woods. But there were communities and they had their own kind of economy, their own society, their own social order and everything. And, and so these were considered like a, another problem that needed to be studied and analyzed and, and some kind of eugenicist wanted some kind of policy recommendation for that. Because the other political context here is not just eugenics, but the progressive era, right? And so as we know, the progressive era believed you know, the progressives were a diverse group, of course. You had everyone from the IWWs who could be considered progressives of type to, to uh, political conservatives who embraced progressivism. Um, you know, but the basic idea of progressivism was that you apply reason and science to a social problem, and then you kind of create policies to fix that, all right? Whether that problem is uh, clean sewers or, or, you know, clean water in, in the city, uh, fires, uh, fires in factories, uh, food safety, or whatever. You study a problem, you create a policy, government will then implement that policy, and that will make life better. That was the progressive idea of the early 20th century. So whether it was like for drink, right? So of course the policy prescription for drink became you ban alcohol, and we, we know how that went. But in many other ways, it, it did create concrete benefits for, for people. Um, but for the eugenicists, they have the same idea, right? That, that the, once we study the problem and understand it, then we need to have a policy that um, reflects it. Now, again, Lovecraft is not commenting on that in this story, Beyond the Wall of Sleep. He simply, in fact, he just kills the guy. That's how he solves the problem. He kills the race mongrel or backwoods degenerate. And so he doesn't have to deal with him anymore. He kills him by the end of the story and can forget about him. He's just a conduit. But the fact that Lovecraft spent so much of his time talking about it is, is, is exactly talking about his racial degeneracy and his, his overall degeneracy is why I'm talking so much about it now, right? Because I, I think you can't read this story now and not be horrified and shocked at the language he uses. It's some of his actually worst and most vile language. Uh, some people say the street has that, and the street certainly has that, or the horror at Red Hook certainly has that. But beyond the wall of sleep, I mean, some of the nastiest words for this man, Joe Slater, are reserved. And of course, uh, Lovecraft could have told this story without uh, using uh, a backcountry Catskill Mountain Denzian. He could have, you know, just had it. Like, like a character like he had in the tomb, right? All he needs is someone to have his mind taken over. He certainly doesn't have any problem giving that plot to elite people, whether it's, um, to a certain degree, uh, Charles Dexter Ward, although that's just an apparent uh, mind swapping, uh, or the character in the tomb, or the character in Polaris, who are all seemingly upper class or middle class type. But Lovecraft wants to make a commentary about these these people um, so yes a lot of Lovecraft's fears and anxieties about race come from the outsider it's not even really uh, he's, a, he's a racist towards black people but he doesn't actually say too much about them and now occasionally there'll be mulattoes or african-american villains in the story like the nautical looking negro in the call of cthulhu but i think the suggestion is that mostly those are immigrants too those are sailors or mulattoes they're there are people who are of the sea in a certain degree, like the deep ones in, uh, in Innsmouth. You know, uh, he doesn't seem to have this as much of a commentary about African-Americans who kind of were descendants of slaves and lived in the United States forever. They're kind of the, the, the and of course, that's another issue of racial politics at the time, which we might have to get to. He's more interested in the immigrant overall. But in this story, we don't have an immigrant we have someone who maybe his, his ancestors were immigrants, like everyone else in the United States who's not native. But, uh, and we don't get it maybe, if anything, I would like to have a little bit more precise definition of his racial background, just so I could kind of um, know exactly what Lovecraft thinks about this. But we're going to have to pick from other stories to fill out the whole story. All right. 
So I've talked for 20 minutes just on the background of this of this story. So sorry about that, but let me go into the plot a little bit. All right, so we've already talked about the, the introduction where he talks about the power of dreams, uh, the fact that we might live lives in, in, in our dreams. And he also talks about how dreams can be sort of a path to, to truth. Quote, sometimes I believe that this lesser material is our truer life and that our vain presence on this terrequious globe is itself secondary or merely virtual phenomenon. So this is rehashing the Polaris stuff, right? This idea that, you know, who's the dreamer, who's the, you know, with, who's being dreamed of and who's the dreamer, this, this kind of ambiguity about that. But this idea that there's something more real in, in our dreamlands, it's very much like Polaris. Um, and then we get the narrator talks about the, the core background of the story. After giving that introduction, it all set in 1900 and 1901. And he is a doctor who works in basically a mental institution. And he, when he gets there, there's this man who's in custody at the mental hospital named Joe Slater, or S-L-A-T-E-R or S-L-A-A-D-E-R. The fact that he doesn't even have a proper spelling of his name suggests this family doesn't have literacy. It's, you know, they're not capable of writing their name. They can only vocalize it. Um, and and he this man is there and he becomes increasingly interested in this man because of his backstory and and his experiences so here's what lovecraft writes his name as given on the records was joe slater or slater and his appearance was that of a typical denzian of the catskill mountain region one of those strange repellent scions of a primitive colonial peasant stock whose isolation for nearly three centuries in the hilly fastness of a little traveled countryside has caused him to sink to a kind of barbaric degeneracy rather than advance with the more fortunately placed brethren of the thickly settled districts. Among these odd folks who correspond exactly to the decadent element of white trash in the South, laws and morals are non-existent, and their general menial mental status is probably below that of any other section of Native American people. So that's, he's white trash, right? That's, he actually literally uses the word white trash. Now, the date here, assuming this story, the story, we're told the story takes place in 1900, 1901. So three centuries, he's been in isolation. So three centuries is 1600. Jamestown was founded in 1607. Uh, New York, maybe by the Dutch, New Amsterdam, maybe 1620s or something. I don't know when Albany was established as a fur trading post but you know nearly three centuries so these, these people have been back there since the the founding of the of the british colonies and the dutch colonies and, and maybe he's he's part dutch right that's uh quite possible here with the uh joe slater is kind of a descendant of that kind of um dutch stock i don't know um, of course, the, the Dutch influence on New York is profound. You have the, the tenant wars, you have the, the whole landowning system of New York, uh, shaped by Dutch traditions and Dutch policies. Um, so this, this Joe Slater uh, gets, gets the attention of the police because he's considered a dangerous person, and, and Lovecraft goes more and more into him, painting him literally as, as kind of physically different, not just mentally and culturally and socially, but physically different from, from you know, I guess, people like Lovecraft. Um, quote, though well above the middle stature and a somewhat brawny frame, he was given an absurd appearance of harmless stupidity by the pale, sleepy blueness of his small, watery eyes, the scantiness of his neglected and never-shaven growth of yellow beard, and the listless drooping of his heavy nether lip. His age was unknown, since among his kind, neither family records nor permanent family tree exist, but from the baldness on the, of his head in the front and from the decayed condition of his teeth, the head surgeon wrote him down as a man about 40. I mean, the guy doesn't even have a birthday. The guy doesn't even have a name, really, because they don't really know how to spell it. It's, you know, he's barely integrated into human society and he's not the only one he's part of a whole clan he's part of a whole community he's part of a whole society of similar people right so now um i don't know what to make of this you've got the yellow beard you've got the heavy never nether nether lip which i think knowing lovecraft is referring to maybe some african-american 
heritage, but he's got blue eyes. So I don't know. I don't think Lovecraft really cares as much about his literal racial background. He's just a degenerate. He's non-Anglo-Saxon, New England, kind of a, you know, proper American stock here. Uh, he's also completely uh, backward economically and socially. Uh, this man, a vagabond, hunter, and trapper, had always been strange in the eyes of his primitive associates. So he's even strange among other people. But he, he makes his living as a trapper. He's, he's kind of literally in the 17th century, kind of economically. Um, but what's special about Slater is he's not totally, uh, well, he is presented here as totally degenerate. But he is also has a very, very rich dream life. Right. Um, he would say things that the other people in his society didn't understand. Quote, not that his form of language was at all unusual, but he never spoke save in the debased patois of his environment. And the tone and tenor of his utterances were in such mysterious wildness that none might listen without apprehension. He himself was generally as terrified and baffled as his auditors, and within an hour after awakening would forget all he had said, or at least all that had come to him all had caused him to say what he did, relapsing into a bovine, half amenable normality like that of the other hill, hill dwellers. So he's kind of flipping in and out of some kind of different consciousness. And he's aware of this and he's kind of terrified by this. But this continues throughout his life. Um, and, you know, so we're told that he's he gets drunk one day. All right. And then he starts uttering things that totally terrify the people around him. And they just assume he's going completely mad, right? The neighbors, the family panicking at this kind of Slater running amok. Um, you know, they, they eventually the police come, the sheriff's posse arrives. Um, a very rare presence in this part of, of the country, we're told. Uh, quote, then had followed an armed searching party the, whose purpose became that of a sheriff posse after one of the seldom popular state troopers had by accident observed and questioned and finally joined the seekers. So the, the police get involved, which is presented here as kind of an ir, uh, abnormal thing. Um, so three days later, they finally find Slater unconscious in a hollow of the tree. He was taken to the jail and taken to, uh, to the alienist. And we get a little bit of the story of what happened while he was gone. Most importantly, he murders his neighbor, Peter Slater. Now, he's a neighbor, but uh, same last name. So we got a suggestion of inbreeding here, as we're not surprised to, to discover. Um, now, he's a bit horrified at what he sees. He doesn't really believe himself was capable of this crime. But nevertheless, that crime has been committed. And he is taken off to, to jail. Uh, he's eventually acquitted of the crime. Um, and and sent to the insane asylum, but not before he begins to to tell his a bit of his story, and he starts to say his point of view about what's happened to him. Um, now he does it in his backwoods uh, potois, you know, not very coherently. Uh, but he is able to begin to articulate his story. And this is what brings the interest of our narrator to uh, Joe Slater. Is there something, he thinks there's something going on in this story. And in fact, there is. So, uh, quote, Sl Slater raved for upward of 15 minutes, babbling in his backwoods dialect of great edifices of light, oceans of space, strange music and shadowy mountains and valleys. But most of all, he did dwell upon some mysterious blazing entity that shook and laughed and mocked at him. This vast, vague personality seemed to have done him a terrible wrong, and to kill it in triumphant revenge was his paramount desire. And that seems to explain why he killed this um, neighbor, because he couldn't get at this entity that, that's tormenting him. Um, so they begin to study him. And we get a long... Um, well, we really get this kind of intertwining of, of, of this discourse of race and intelligence, which, of course, dominates so much of the early part of the story as we're introduced to Joseph Slater, with uh, the growing narrative of dreams as maybe being an explanation for this particular, the, the, this, this specific acute event of Joseph Slater's crime. Um, 
and, and it really gets all mixed together. So these two themes tie very closely. What does he say here? Quote, on the source of Slater's vision, they speculated at length, for since he could neither read nor write and had apparently never heard a legend or fairy tale, his gorgeous imagery was quite inexplicable. That it could not come from any other myth or romance was made especially clear by the fact that the unfortunate lunatic expressed himself only in his own simple manner. He raved of things he did not understand and could not interpret, things which he claimed to have experienced, but which he could not have learned through other normal connected narration. The alienists soon learned, agreed that the abnormal dreams were the foundation of the trouble. Dreams whose vividness could for a time completely dominate the waking mind of this basically inferior man. And this is what leads to his acquittal. So this is the evidence that gets presented for his acquittal. Now, here's what I want to say about this a little bit. Um, Lovecraft, as I talked about when I looked at The Alchemist, you know, believes in these kind of informal vernacular networks of knowledge and power. Uh, you know, on the one hand, they have knowledge. They have, they have knowledge maybe of the ancient gods, of rituals, of traditions, witchcraft, whatever it might be. And that's somehow unknown to mainstream society unless they're willing to dive into the elite kind of reflection of that, the mirror image of that, like the Necronomicon or the Panoptic Manuscripts or whatever Lovecraftian text you want to throw in there. But it's a kind of a mirror image of the vernacularly held knowledge. Right now, occasionally you find it mixing, like in the Dunwich Horror, where the vernacular knowledge is not incomplete. So they have to go and get the, the Necronomicon, right, to kind of fill in the picture. Um, but that said, you know, Lovecraft usually thinks there's a lot of knowledge and therefore a lot of power in these working class others, the immigrants, the, the rabble, the degenerates, all these people he fears. There's some powerful knowledge that they have. He doesn't give this to Joe Slater, though, here. That's what's striking. Joe Slater doesn't even know, like, fairy tales. Like, he's that, like, isolated that he hasn't even been given, like, the basic folk tales of, of the culture, which seems really bizarre because, obviously, this is where folklore lives, right, in, the, in, in illiterate cultures. Right. And we'll set aside the fact that there wasn't much of an illiterate culture in New York at the time. But nevertheless, there should be um, some evidence here of, of, of knowledge held by Slater. But Lovecraft just makes him the most ignorant, um, unenvenable degenerate he can make. I mean, he really goes overboard in the description here. He even goes beyond how he normally does when talking about these types of figures. So after the acquittal, he's brought to the insane asylum. And as criminally insane, and that's when the narrator begins to come interested in him. And at first he thinks he's just kind of pining away, wishing for, quote, his mountain freedom uh, that he can never enjoy again. I want to emphasize mountain freedom because that's another, that is something that Joe Slater, if indeed he is pining for mountain freedom, this is the narrator's opinion. Um, but if he is, he has this in common with someone like Castro. Castro in The Call of Cthulhu, and other characters who embrace this, these, these, these cults and these kind of worship of the ancient gods, especially in The Call of Cthulhu, but also in Innsmouth, uh, the festival, is the promise of some kind of earthly freedom, right? Um, that's somehow separate from civilization and in opposition and in, in hostility to civilization. And for Lovecraft, this is really bad stuff. Of course, but I think we can read into Lovecraft some potential here of seeing the working class as really embracing a totally different vision of what freedom really means, kind of an earthly freedom. Now, here it's just the only I'm only I'm kind of drawing this out from just two words, mountain freedom. But whenever Lovecraft talks about freedom, you know, I'm 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 interested because I think that's key to unlocking uh, all these different threads I'm, I'm beginning to tug at. And we need to, we can tug at these threads, but eventually if we don't sew them back together, our, our clothes are just going to unravel, right? So, uh, you know, one I think is certainly knowledge, race, ancestry, freedom now. Freedom and civilization is another kind of way we can tie back this, this narrative and make some sense of it. Um, um, 
Now, the narrator, now getting to know Slater, gives Lovecraft another chance to just dig into how inferior poor Joe Slater is. Quote, the man himself was pitifully inferior in mentality and language alike, but his glowing titanic visions, though described in a barbarous and disjointed jargon, were assuredly things which only a superior or even exceptional brain could conceive. How I often ask myself, could the stolid imagination of a Catskill degenerate conjure up sights whose very possession argued a lurking spark of genius? How could any backwards dullard had gained so much of an idea of those glittering reams of supernatural radiance in space about which Slater ranted in his furious delirium? More and more, I incline to the belief that in the pitiful personality who cringed before me lay the distorted nucleus of something beyond my comprehension, something infinitely more something infinitely beyond my comprehension of my more experienced but less imaginative medical and scientific colleagues. Um, now, I'll call out here the fact that Lovecraft always sort of believed that the imaginative could have this curiosity and, and, and you know, like the psychologically sensitive he talks about in uh, supernatural horror in literature. But more to the point here, why do you need Slater so inferior? I mean, Lady Lovecraft was forced to. Because if this was just uh, like, like if you remember Charles Dexter Ward, Charles Dexter Ward, if you haven't read it yet, we'll get to it eventually. But he gets, he literally gets murdered and taken over by his ancestor, Joseph Kerwin, who's revived. Um, so it's not a mind swapping thing. But at the time, you know, he looks similar. He's got some physical differences, but he basically looks the same. Uh, and people just think he's acting weird, right? because he's a he's educated so his him talking in weird 18th century language is not inconceivable for them it's just this guy's gone nuts the only way our narrator here can know that there's something extra-worldly about slater is by him being this total degenerate who's not even capable of uttering like more than like a one syllable word and then the fact that he says something that is so beyond his mental capacity this says, oh, there must be something out worldly here, right? It's, it's the only way the narrator can even ask the question, I think, in this particular story. So our narrator begins to imagine uh, the, the, a dr the, this dream life being this explanation, something the, the, the doctors who kind of helped him get acquitted as mentally ill used this dreams to sort of say, well, there's some other level here. This is a window into his madness. But our narrator thinks this is a window into like another world, something truly otherworldly. Um, and he thinks, he starts to take this, this descriptions that Slater gives of things like a luminous being of some other entity seriously and says, maybe there really is this other entity. So he begins his quest, he begins his curiosity. And once again, as in pretty much every Lovecraft story, we have curiosity uh, being uh, unwakened by something and then pursued by our, 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 our hero. Now, normally that's a bad thing, right? Like in a story he wrote right around the same time, literally the same summer, the statement of Randall Carter. Um, we'll look at that story when um, a few later. I, I, I think I won't look at it right away, but... In a few episodes, we'll look at the statement of Randall Carter. And there, it's very clear. Don't read the book. Don't go in the cave. Don't go in the tomb. Lock it up. Blow it up. Do what the police do with Innsmouth. Carpet bomb it. You know, eradicate it. Don't even think about it. Uh, that is best. Uh, again, the hero of the case of Charles Dexter Ward is a hero because he does the complete cover-up. That's, uh, that's his heroism. Right, he was the ultimate uh, 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 plumber. Okay, but here we got curiosity without too many negative consequences, except for Slater, who, who's kind of said eh, he's going to die anyway. So we find out later on. Um, now, our narrator, unlike others apparently in the story, is a materialist in terms of human thought. Right. So, uh, just to jump ahead here to Herbert West, Reanimator. I can find it. Let me pause here and I'll come back. Uh, Lovecraft certainly, I found it. Lovecraft certainly did believe in this materialist explanation of life, right? That there wasn't kind of something 
some kind of ghost in the sh in the machine. You thought there's just the machine. We're just fancy machines, just brain, right? That's all we are. And it's kind of a position I hold too. Um, this is from the Herbert West. I've always been exceptionally tolerant of West's pursuits, and we frequently discussed his theories whose ramifications and corollaries were almost infinite. Holding with Heckel, Heckel was the biologist of 19th century biologist who painted all those beautiful portraits of, of sea fossils and things. Okay. Holding with Heckel that all life was a chemical and physical process and that the so-called soul is a myth, my friend believed that artificial reanimation of the dead, blah, blah, blah. So, um, this guy's the same, right? Quote, it has long been my belief that human thought consists basically of atomic or molecular motion, convertible into ether waves of radiant energy like heat, light, and electricity. The belief of early led me to complicate the source of possibility of telepathy or mental communication by means of a suitable apparatus. Um, now, Lovecraft will use technology to do the mind swap, obviously in the whisper in darkness. It's, it's key uh, to that story. Um, but technology, so he's, he actually experimented in this before, our narrator. And so he had this device like locked away. He experimented with it, but he couldn't get anywhere with it. So he digs it out. Now that he's got this, yeah, this degenerate that he can experiment on without any kind of consent, because he's a madman or whatever, he begins to experiment on poor Joe Slater. Um, and the breakthrough happens, I guess, in February 1901, and, and around the time that Joe Slater's dying. So there's a timer here. There, this, the timer is Joe Slater's death. So he's trying to figure this out. He's trying to get this experiment because he thinks through this device, he can connect it up to Joe Slater. He can have some kind of communication with uh, this extra-worldly being. Um, but the fact that Joe Slater's dying is presented in such a really disgusting way. It's, I mean, I, I really think Lovecraft kind of went nuts writing this story in, in his just disgust about like these backwoods people. I don't know, did, did one pick on him as a kid or something? Um, quote, that faithful night I was wildly agitated and perturbed, for despite the excellent care he had received, Joe Slater was unmistakably dying. Perhaps it was his mountain freedom that he missed, or perhaps the turmoil in his brain had grown too acute for his rather sluggish physique. But at all events, the flame of vitality flickered low in, his in the decadent body. He was drowsy near the end, and as darkness fell, he dropped off into a troubled sleep. Um, so either this experience is too much for him, or he just misses mountain freedom so much. He just can't be confined. He's so uh, barbarous that he can't even endure. He can't even live in this type of um, uh, institutionalization. Um, so eventually, though, and I, now I'm kind of going to want to get to the end, end of the story pretty quickly. Um, our narrator uses this device to begin to communicate with this, this entity. And in the process, it kills Joe Slater. Um, no one really cares. In fact, even the entity talks about Joe Slater as degenerate, um, saying, well, well, first, what did they talk about? So he first, through this device, is able to sort of experience this other world. He's able to see, he presents it as escape into this. Um, and we learn that the entity is also trying to escape. So there's a, a, a motif here of escape, both as the narrator is kind of escaping his confines and the entity is using Joe Slater to kind of make contact with others and in doing so escape his own confinement. Uh, and literally there's oppressors here. Uh, so he tells the story. The, the creature tells the story. Um, What do I got here? Um, we floated thus for a little time when I perceived a slight burning and fading of the objects around us, as though some force was recalling me to earth, when at last I where I least wished to go. The form near me seemed also to feel a change also, for it gradually brought its discourse towards a conclusion, and itself prepared to quit the scene, fading from my sight at a rate somewhat less rapid than that of other objects. A few more thoughts were exchanged, and I knew that the luminous one was being recalled to bondage, through for my brother in light, it would be the last time. The sorry planet shell being well nigh spent, 
In less than an hour, my fellow would be free to pursue their oppressor along the Milky Way and past the hither stars to the very confines of infinity. So anyway, so th this experience ends. And then uh, Slater's not quite dead yet, so he tries one last time, one last attempt to use this, what he calls a telepathic radio, to contact this. Um, at this point, Joe Slater is, for all intents and purposes, a corpse. Uh, quote, the man who had been Joe Slater, the Catskill decadent, was now gazing at me with a pair of luminous expanded eyes whose blue seemed subtly to have deepened. Neither mania nor norgenesy was visible in that gaze, and I felt beyond a doubt that I was viewing a face behind which lay an active mind of high order. And now he talks to this uh, creature, this entity, through the body of, of Joe Slater. And he sort of says, you know, I've been looking for someone like you, someone who understands the, the dreams and understands that this, this world is not, we're not limited by this physical form. Uh, but Joe Slater could only be someone I could use, but not really gain anything from because he wasn't my equal. So the fact that he, he, he also thinks Joe Slater is a degenerate just makes me laugh, actually. Because uh, Lovecraft, even when Joe Slater is essentially a corpse, uh, you know, it's still like, oh, we got to remind you that this guy is, is a degenerate, a backwoods degenerate. Um, he explains himself a little bit. I'm an entity like you that, like, or I'm an entity like that which you yourself become in the freedom of dreamless sleep. I am your brother of light and have floated with you in effulgent valleys. It was not permitted me to tell your walking earth self of your real self, but we are all roamers of vast space and travelers of many age. Next year I may be dwelling in the dark Egypt, which you call ancient, or the cruel emperor of Sajtan, which is, come, which is to come 3,000 years hence. You and I have drifted in the worlds that reel around the red Arcturus and dwell in the bodies of the insect philosophers that crawl profoundly over the fourth moon of Jupiter. How little does the earth... No life in extent, how little indeed ought it to know for its own tranquility. Um, so what do we have here? Well, Sans Khan is mentioned somewhere else in Lovecraft's writings. Dark Egypt, of course, we have the, the, re the basically Lovecraft wrote under the pyramids for Harry Houdini. Um, the fourth moon of Jupiter, where you have insect philosophers. Um, so I don't know what are those. Are those Migos or... or or something like that. I don't know. I don't think he's got all this kind of mythos worked out yet at this point. But he, he plants a few seeds here, which he can play with. Um, he goes on. Of the oppressor I cannot speak. You on earth have unwittingly felt its distinct presence. You who without knowing idly gave to it blinking beacon the name of Algol, the demon star. It is to meet and conquer the oppressor that I vainly strive for eons, held back by bodily encumbrances. Tonight I go as a nemesis bearing just in blazingly cataclysmic vengeance. Watch me in the sky close to the demon star. Um, so Joe Slater dies, and this means this ends their communication. And, and that's, that's basically the story. So um, a really interesting tale that kind of intertwines this theme of eugenics and race and backwardness and this fundamentally... Lovecraft's desire to kind of divide up society into, into uh, you know, the racial other. Um, but then you have this much more broad cosmic story of, of some kind of cosmic struggle, people trying to flee, using dreams to access the dreams of other people, you know, and eventually we're taking over Joe Slater because his mind apparently can be easily controlled and then using that to have a, a discourse with, with someone else. So I don't know which to take away. I mean, they're kind of equally dominant themes in this story. Uh, one is kind of the, the cosmic horror angle, the, 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 the vastness of the universe, the insignificance of man, all there, just like it is in Polaris, and memory. But then you have this very, very strong, almost uh, oppressive reminder of how our society is it's filled with these degenerate inferior type that need to be somehow purged or killed or for, or locked away um, now they're not presented as as dangerous as they are in some of his other stories uh though um like in the alchemist i think even there but there's a little taste here at the end of the story 
Um, he says, uh, okay, as I've already admitted my superior, Dr. Fenton denies the reality of everything I related. So no one's going to believe him. We're not surprised there. He, quote, he vows that I was broken down with nervous strain and badly in need of a long vacation on full pay, which he so generously gave me. He assures me on his professional honor that Joe Slater was but a low-grade paranoiac whose fantastic notions must have come from the crude hereditary folktales which circulate in even the most decadent of communities. Now, we were told, I remember, because I mentioned it in this podcast, we were told later that Joe Slater couldn't have been the source of these tales he's telling because he doesn't even have the capacity to have those folktales. Those folktales just don't exist. Yeah, it says here, this is just a few pages earlier. It could not have come from any known myth or romance was made especially clear by the fact that the unfortunate lunatic expressed himself only in his own simple manner. He could not have learned through any normal or connected narration. So my question is, do these people have their folk tales? Do they have their stories? Do they have their traditions or not? And at the end, the admission is sort of, yeah, but maybe, maybe Slater was like so degenerate. He didn't even have access to that. But the idea that some kind of truth is still filtering through the communities of people like Joe Slater, the crude hereditary folktales, I mean, that is as spooky for Lovecraft as the, the cosmic realization that we're not, we're not alone, but we're actually insignificant. Um, so anyways, the end of the story is a new star appears. And he, he gets this, uh, so we get a little bit of Lovecraft's interest in amateur astronomy. A new star is discovered, and that star uh, seems to be referring to what the entity was talking about, Algo the Demon Star. So it, it refers to near there. So it's that entity somehow dwelling in, in space. All right, that's a lot. There's a lot to say about Beyond the Wall of Sleep. If that's... Uh, um, I don't know what I'm going to do when I get to some of the really meaty tales. I'll probably break it up into several episodes. But we'll worry about that when we get to them. It's going to be a while before we get to the really long tales. Um, so next, the next story, if you're reading along with me, is, let me make sure. I wrote these down, but I want to make sure I got the right order. I'm doing it in the order of, of written as included in Appendix 2 of the second volume of the Leslie Klinger Anthology. So after Beyond the Wall of Sleep, uh, Old Bugs, written in summer of, of 1919, is around the same time. So Old Bugs, not a horror story, a uh, story about drinking. So we'll talk about Old Bugs, and I will also talk about some of his writing about alcohol. Um, that. I will get back to the, I will do the nonfiction writings more systematically, but we're going to have to talk about his views on drink when we look at a story like Old Bugs. So um, that's it for now. Thanks for listening to all my, my nonsense about Beyond the Wall of Sleep. If you have your own thoughts about it, let me know, and, and I'll try to get back to you. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Please leave a... Uh, review on iTunes or or um, or leave a comment on Podbean or, or however you listen to it. I'd love to have your feedback. Uh, so see you next time when we'll talk about old bugs.